to introduce Hosea, uh, not to go all the way through him, in the hope that uh, you will want to read him for yourself. I'm going to read the first chapter of Hosea. There's so many bits of Hosea that I would love to read, but I'm going to just read the first chapter, at least to begin with. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. The thing that strikes me about that tiny paragraph is the Lord is mentioned three times. It's capital letter Lord, what we've come across before, representing Yahweh, the God who is. I am that I am. I brook no rivals. It's the almighty God, the one God, the true God. And he is mentioned by name three times. And Israel's sin is mentioned three times as whoredom. Um, We don't often talk about prostitution from a pulpit or sexual inappropriateness or stuff like that. Uh, But God is quite blatant about the northern kingdom of Israel in the days of Hosea that their worship to him is like prostitution. And whilst on the one hand he despises it, on the other hand, what he is saying through Hosea the prophet is, it really, really hurts him. Because Israel is a people who have covenanted themselves to him. And he has covenanted himself to them. And he said that he will be their God forever. And they have said that they will serve and love and obey him. And he said that he would be with them forever. And this is a covenant, remember, made by Almighty God, who is the Lord of all these vast universes that we keep hearing about. And the creator of them. And the sustainer of them. And this is the Lord saying to a people like you and me, I am utterly, totally devoted to you. I will not renege. This is covenant. But his people's worship is to him like prostitution. And so he asked Hosea, and this is, this is really weird, how did Hosea know God was saying this? I'm glad he didn't say it to me. How would I have known he was saying it to me? Go and marry. Get yourself a wife of whoredom. So he marries this woman. So he took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. There is is a clear warning of judgment there. Jezreel was a place 
It was a place where King Ahab, many years before, had stolen the vineyard of Naboth. Do you remember? A God-fearing man. And he'd done it for his wife Jezebel, whom he had married from, a, from a, um, another, another nation. And she had brought her gods, the Baals, with her. And uh, Ahab had spilt the blood of this God-fearing man and done what the law said that nobody should do, but he, the king, had done it on behalf of the Baals, um, the Baalim, the gods, the fertility gods. And God had said to him that the day would come when he would wrench the kingdom out of his hands. And what is saying, what is happening now is God is saying, I've waited, I've waited, I've waited. I've sent my prophets. The time is up. Judgment is sure to come. That he's going to break the bow of Israel in Jezreel. If you break the bow, that's your end of your fighting force. And before Hosea died, before his, his prophecy, prophesying came to an end, the Assyrians had marched into Israel, decimated it, carried off its people into forced exile. She conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord said to him, now this is really tough. Um, and in our days of psychology, we wonder what effect this might have upon a child. But she conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So there's a child to be called no mercy. And when this child was weaned, Gomer conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people and I'm not your God. And It's not until you read chapter 2 that you suddenly realise that these two children, the second and the third children, are actually because she's gone off and committed adultery with someone else. They're not actually Hosea's children, as I read it. They're the children she's gone off. She's done her stuff. And then... God says, yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They've been fighting each other for years. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. A new day of Jezreel, a day of God's planting, because that's what Jezreel means. When God will actually ransom this wretched, exiled people and make them his people all over again in such a way that they themselves recognize him as their God. That they reneged on him, but he won't renege on them. And his promise stands firm, however bad their wickedness gets. So the beginning of chapter 2 says, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, 
you have received mercy. Now this in a nutshell is the whole message of Hosea. God uses Hosea and his life story, his marriage set up, the catastrophes, the the sense of betrayal, the hurt, the the pain that he goes through. Um, He actually calls Hosea to suffer that. And that is the, the basis of his whole prophetic ministry. This is how God feels about you, people of Israel. Now we need a bit of context, so we've got um, a map, which uh, a thing which I hope you can read. I'm going to have to explain it for those who are listening, uh, listening to the podcast. You can see that Judah and Israel, after the death of Solomon, split up into two separate nations. Judah, the southern nation, Israel, the northern nation. Israel, the larger of the two. During the time of Isaiah and Jeroboam, there had been a lull in the sort of um, Palestine area. You have to picture it from your news pictures of Palestine. The Palestine area was like a buffer zone between the, the, um, the great powers of the north and the south. In Hosea's day, they, that was Assyria in the north, and it was Egypt in the south. But during, um, during Isaiah and Jeroboam's time, there had been a lull and a weakening of those sort of great powers. And so both Israel and Judah had expanded, Israel to the north and Judah to to the south. And so there was quite a lot of um, wealth going around and and new land, and, and everybody thought, well, we're doing okay. This is great. But that began to change with the death of Jeroboam, the second who was the king of Israel, that uh, king of Israel. That began to change because the Assyrian Empire grew in strength again and gradually came down uh, towards Israel. And during Hosea's time, there were six separate incursions of, of Assyrian troops into Israeli territory, chipping off a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, and at one time, sort of later on, sort of actually coming to the very gates of the king's palace. Until in the year 722, Assyria finally overran Israel. Now, Jeroboam was succeeded by his son, Zechariah, but he was the end of a dynasty. And something really went radically wrong in Israel at this point. Zechariah lasted for six months. And then a man, Shalom, came along and organized a coup, killed Zechariah, and acceded to the throne himself. But he only lasted for one month. Because then a man, Menahem, came along. And he took the throne. And so you see, through all this time that Hosea is prophesying, Israel is in a state of um, unparalleled political upheaval and instability. There's violence and intrigue going on all the time in in the powers of government and in the religious institutions. So Menahem was succeeded by Pekahiah, who was then killed by his captain of the guard, who lasted ten years and I think managed to die a natural death before Hosea became king. Pekah, um, Menahem 
who was a king of Israel, paid tribute. He survived by paying protection money, in effect, to uh, Assyria. The same happened with Pekah. He paid, paid tribute. But when Hosea, the last king of Israel, came along, he thought he'd be really clever politically, and he tried to double-cross Assyria, and that did for Israel. That was the end of it. So, apart from anything else, try and imagine living in circumstances of uncertainty and upheaval like that. Now, the people of Israel have taken comfort in their religion. But the problem with their religion is that many years before, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel had decided that he needed to institute a new religion. They still called it by the name of the Lord because these were all Jews and they were used to the Lord. But he built two sanctuaries, one at a place called Bethel, house of God, and one at a place called Dan, and he erected golden calves. So he mingled the religion of Israel with this new form of religion. And the reason was, he said to himself, if I don't do that, these people are Jews and they will go down to Jerusalem to worship and I will lose my power base. So I'm going to set up this new, these new religious institutions to undergird my kingly power base. And that's precisely the reason he did it. Scripture tells me so. But he also allowed anybody who wanted to become priests... So the priesthood uh, became, well, just weird, I suppose. And then, because it, the way of doing diplomacy in those days was either by marriage or by taking up the gods of other people, he took up the gods of the nations round about him. And so Baal became part of Israel's worship. Now, the Baal, there are a number of them, but basically they were fertility gods, okay? God of storm and God of rain. And if you offered up to them properly, then they guaranteed fertility and, uh, and fruitfulness in your fields. Often in those days, though, Baal was linked with another one called Astarte or Asherah. And Asherah, I think, I'm looking to any experts who may be around here, was a woman. But she was a god, she must have been because she was a goddess. Um, and she was a goddess of love and fertility. So Baal and Asherah often were joined in the cultic worship. And what this led to was temple prostitution. The idea was that at certain times you went up to the prostitutes and you prayed a prayer, something like, uh, may Astarte bless you and may Baal bless our fields. And so there was literal sexual stuff going on in the name of the Lord our God. Capital L-O-R-D. The God who is God of all. And so you can understand why God is saying you have absolutely, totally prostituted yourselves. And the outcome of that was the kind of social upheaval which Iron read about. There was thievery and all the stuff going on that we recognise from our daily newspapers. Because there was a breakdown of law and there was no 
real looking to God. Now, this is not saying that everybody in Israel had gone this way, because long before, in the days of a king Ahab, when Elijah was around, he complained to God that he was the last one that really loved God, and God said, no, he still had 7,000 in Israel who hadn't kissed Baal. So we're not saying that everybody in Israel were like this, but we're saying that predominantly this was the way Israel was run. It was the way these kings ran their life. It was the way the priests ran their life. And so if you read Hosea, you will discover that in one place he says, I'm speaking to you priests. I'm speaking to you house of Israel. I'm speaking to you kings. That takes guts, doesn't it? I mean, my daughter suggested that I listen to um, something on YouTube yesterday by a man who, de- who denies that God is. And uh, my daughter's not at this moment a Christian. And it cost me something to say to her, well, unless he can show me that my experience of Jesus Christ is up- utterly off the rails, I'm sorry, I won't, I'll listen, but I won't have anything to do with him. It cost me something to be honest enough with my own daughter But these prophets are standing before the priests, the whole cultus of a nation, and before their kings. And they're saying, in the name of the Almighty God, who alone is God, he says, you are hurting him so much. He is so devastated by your actions. Because as my wife has devastated me by her adulteries, you have devastated God by yours. People often ask the philosophical question, can God suffer? You only need to look at Jesus Christ to answer that question. But here, God has called upon Hosea to demonstrate pain, the feelings of betrayal, the sickness of heart, the confusion This is how God says he is in relation to a people he couldn't feel like that about if he didn't genuinely love them, could he? If he was just some great, I don't know how else you would put it, this impassive, sort of cruel, I don't care kind of God. He couldn't suffer this from his people. But he did. In Hosea chapter 3, that chapter 2, you must read chapter 2 because chapter 2 then, it's, it's an oracle. And it sounds at first as though it's an oracle about Goma, Hosea's wife. In fact, it's an oracle about Israel, and you soon realize that. God is saying all these things. But he's also saying, you can only go so far with me. He's going to put the people away, and he's going to put them into exile. He's going to take them into another wilderness. He's going to allow them, as a result of their wickedness, to be without king and without altar, 
without law. He's going to allow them to be in another place where they're enforced refugees with no tradition behind them and no immediate knowledge of the place. But he's going to do this not because he hates them, but because he wants them to turn back to him. He wants them to say, how do we get ourselves into this? Let us return to the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord again. It's, we really, we were really, we shouldn't have gone for those bales. We should remember the God who brought us out of Egypt. And a number of times throughout Hosea, you will see God's remembrances of the times when he's brought them. He's loved them. I brought my son out of Egypt, he says. There was your father Israel, and he wrestled with me and prevailed. And throughout Hosea, there are these, it's as though God is remembering. This is what it was like at the beginning, do you remember? This is how we loved one another. This is how I called you. This is how you responded. This is how you looked up to me as your Lord and your God. This was the relationship we had. Now look what you've done with it. And so he's allowing them to go into this exile, this wilderness, because he wants them to remember. Say, so let us return to the Lord who is our God. And he's saying, I've never ceased to be your God. So in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, this is his personal, his personal history again. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. I'm assuming that's Gomer again. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. During the course of his 30, 40 years as a prophet. Um, kings changed in Judah as well. Isaiah, Jotham were reasonably good kings and Ahaz came along and he formed an alliance with the Assyrians so that they would protect him from Syria and he introduced Assyrian gods. And so at times in Hosea, if you read it through, you will see that he turns to um, Judah and says, don't you follow in their ways. You be careful. Listen to what God is saying to Israel. Don't follow their ways. Maybe Hezekiah listened to that. Because Hezekiah, who followed Ahaz, and was king of Judah after Israel had been taken into exile, 
was a good king and an extraordinary king actually because in the direst of political and military circumstances in the greatest danger to his country and to his city he elected to trust God where the nation Israel before him had always looked for political alliances rather than to God to save them from their perils. Maybe Hosea's ministry to Israel is something that deeply influenced Hezekiah because it's interesting that Hosea's ministry says it was in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah which means that Hosea outlived or continued prophesying beyond the exile. I marvel at that because the very last chapter of Hosea which I take therefore to be the latest chronologically that I've got no just reason for saying that except that it's the last chapter after he's seen Israel refuse to return to the Lord after many warnings over perhaps 30 years and other prophets as well prophesying the same things after he's seen their absolute refusal to take any notice and he now sees the land desolate that was once rich and occupied at the end of Jeroboam II's reign. He sees his own words actually visually fulfilled that the place where they had their altars are now covered with thorns. He looks around and he sees that the land is laid waste just as God had put it in his heart to prophesy. He sees the people now scattered and these forced exiles somewhere else he's still able to write chapter 14 after they've taken no notice of him and no notice of God he's able to say of God, God's words I will heal their apostasy I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them I will be like dew to Israel remember they're scattered I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. And his, sh his shoot shall spread out. And his beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Leban Lebanon. And uh, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. And they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. And their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. God who is so forgotten has not forgotten and has been so unloved and abused and abandoned, still cherishes and loves. As Paul says about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is just lavished on us. And this covenant love of God continues to be stretched out, ready to be lavished on this people again. What an extraordinary, wonderful God. Read it for yourself. Take your time over it. I had to read it three times, actually, before 
I began to get the lilt of it and the feel of it and the passion of it and the anguish of it. How God loves his people. Somebody said to me very, very recently, talking about Hosea, that um, they wondered whether there'd be people in this congregation today who might very well know they've been unfaithful to the Lord. So I'm not looking at anyone, but I'm looking all around, if you see what I mean. Because I know that God has given me a wake-up call. They wonder whether there's any one of you here who has senses you've actually been quite unfaithful to the Lord. Perhaps you've been faithful on Sundays, but on Mondays, the rule of the world takes over. The policies that the government says we have to fulfill rule our lives and, and kind of rule out compassion and forgiveness and, and mercy and God-fearing uh, where it now suddenly seems inappropriate to pray about the issues in the office because the issues are plain, do what the government or the boss says in the way that he says it or else. I don't know, I'm not in that business, so you can correct me if you want to. But nevertheless, there may be those amongst you who have been unfaithful. You might even the odd one of you be convinced that actually you've not really been worshipping the Lord after all, but a mishmash of other things with the name, capital letter L-O-R-D, tagged on. Now if that's the case, listen to the beginning of Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. We will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We won't ride on horses. We'll say, no more, our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Well, they'd been iniquitous in their worship, so take away all iniquity. They had made false vows and stupid, hideous, from God's point of view, offerings. We will pay with bulls and the vow of our lips. They had turned to outside, they had turned to, to other nations and in so doing to other gods. Assyria shall not save us. They had relied upon their own strength and energy. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, when really we haven't even got you in mind. That's a fairly good way of coming back to God, isn't it? to the God who says, I will heal even their apostasy. The thing is that if you're in this position, you're actually still here this morning. 
You're still here. And it's still in your heart somewhere. I don't know about you, but it bothers me if I come across a boss or somebody in charge who is not prepared to get his hands dirty in the same way that he asks his workers to get their hands dirty. I'm the big boss, you can clean the loose. That kind of attitude. And it could be, you could, somebody could be forgiven to think, but God, what a horrible thing to give Hosea to do. You have just ruined this man's life, asking him to marry a prostitute and then demonstrate how bad you feel in his own life. But God is not somebody who asks somebody else to do something that he's not willing to do himself, is he? Because all through the Old Testament, a Messiah is promised. And when the Messiah comes, he turns out to be Jesus Christ who said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And we see this one whom we call Son of God humiliated. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to his own and his own received him not. Yet he walked alongside them and healed their sick and gave sight to their blind and offered light to everybody. And then he was crucified for it. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And in Christ, we're told, we see God in action. God didn't ask Hosea what he wasn't willing to do for himself. He's done it. Not just for Israel, but for you and me. And since he's gone to such incredible depths, even stepping into your place in hell to release you from it, simply through your act of faith, as you trust him, rather than your own works or these other gods or the government's stipulations or whatever. So that he can release you through his own agony. Isn't that extraordinary? And so the same God who called through Hosea to Israel calls through Hosea and through Jesus Christ to you. And even if you really messed up, it's far from all lost. <laughs> because God's just waiting on the threshold, saying that even if it were apostasy, I can heal your apostasy. <laughs> I love you freely. My anger turns away from you. The blood of Jesus speaks for you. The sacrifice is made. The agony has been through. Come back.
Let's be a people together. You and me under a new covenant. In Jesus' name.